0: Welcome to the Sunday Morning Podcast from Kingdom Faith Church in Burgess Hill. This message is by Colin Squires. If you remember back uh, a little just before Christmas during the time of Advent, one of the things we talked about was peace, the peace of God, this deep abiding Peace, despite what's going on around us. We looked at John 16:32, when Jesus says about a time when you're going to be scattered and each going to your own home, but and there's going to be tribulation. But these things I tell you so that you might have peace. And it seems very apt in a time of lockdown and being scattered to our homes that Jesus was speaking about a peace that is not affected by our surroundings. And the picture we looked at was Jesus in the boat during the storm and the disciples were, who were fishermen who, if anyone should have been comfortable in that kind of weather, it would have been them. So this was obviously a really big storm. And yet Jesus was sleeping in the boat. He had this peace in the Father that came from his abiding in the Father's love for him that meant he was unshakable no matter what was going on around him. And we had time to look at that inner peace, but we didn't have so much time to look at the outer peace uh, the peace that affects the circumstances around us. If we were looking at before the peace that kept Jesus asleep at rest in the boat, then today we're looking at the peace that Jesus said to the storm, be peace, peace, be still, which affected the disciples, it affected the scenario, the situation around him. But that second kind of peace that affects the atmosphere around us must come from that first kind of abiding peace. This is the peace that overflows. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you, have you ever had that experience where you've gone to somebody's house or someone's home or or a building or a place and you've just like known the peace of God? I, I, Kate and I and, and Ari, we had the, the opportunity to go to Pastor Clive and Jane's house recently for the first time, we ate together, I think, in about a year. And the first time we've been to their home, um, at least on the inside, since they'd moved. And it was just great. They gave us the tour, looking around the house. And it's a beautiful home and they've got great taste. And I need to hire them as interior decorators. It's lovely. It's a wonderful, peaceful home. But there was something different about when they showed us their prayer room. And we walked in and there was just something of the presence of God. It was like the peace of God. In that time, we just knew they had spent time with Jesus in there because the atmosphere of Jesus, the fragrance of Christ, this peace. It's almost like it seeped into the sofa and the carpet and the walls. And there was something of peace that remained in that space. And it's that kind of peace, this peace that remains, that affects those around us, that affects our world, the tangible peace that we're going to talk about today, that God wants to speak to us about this morning. This is the peace that Jesus spoke about, I believe, in John 14, 27, where he said, My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Um, it's the peace that talks about when Jesus said in Matthew 10:13, If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it, and if it is not, let your peace return to you. One of our daughter's favourite foods at the moment is this like apple sauce in a pot that she calls her pot pot. Uh, which is very cute, and she'll start off with a spoon and she'll spoon feed herself and of course most of it will go down her chin and over her, her bib and then the last little bit she can't get with a spoon, she gets her hands out and she kind of eats it like this and it ends up like war paint over her face and then she's learning all these words at the moment and she'll go hair and then rub it in her hair <laughs> and then you know, she'll go bath and do the sign for bath and rub it all over her she'll also toes and there's applesauce everywhere but one of her favourite things to do at the moment is high five. And she's taken a particular liking to our housemate who moved in recently. Rin, who I think is here this morning. Hi, Rin. And and Ari just will go over and over again, Rin, 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 high five. (laughs) But even worse is when she says, cuddle. (laughs) And she's just covered. And I believe that what God wants to do today, speak to us about a piece that it's like, it's so, we've saturated ourselves in it. And then we're going to go and just pass it on to others This peace that is like this apple sauce so That you've had three showers since And you can still smell it on you And you think where is that coming from This peace that gets into the crevices of our being And those around us That they can't easily shake off Amen Peace that affects our mental well-being Peace that affects our physical well-being It affects our spirits It affects our whole selves And those around us and it's this piece I believe God wants to speak about today. Now, I think it's, uh, it's, it's obviously part of this continuing series we've been looking at, continuing with the words of Jesus. We've spent a lot of time in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We've looked at um, blessed are the meek. We've looked at blessed are, the, are the, uh, those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are um, the... Uh, peacemakers. That's what we're looking at today. Um, bless the merciful, that's what I was trying to remember. Bless the merciful that we, we looked at last week. And today, bless the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. I think this is really apt because we're living in a really interesting time culturally, a time of uh, moral relativism, of liberal extremism, of moral outrage, of council culture, of um, just this idealistic, idolatry, um, and we're living in a time where it's almost impossible to post something on Twitter or Instagram without offending somebody. You know, I had Weetabix for breakfast. Oh, I'm offended. All those, what about all those people that are allergic to Weetabix? Didn't you think of them? You know, it's just ridiculous. It, it seems that everybody is angry at someone about something. And we are called in the midst of this, like Jesus, to be peacemakers. It seems that there's this growing sentiment at the moment, especially as sad as I am to say it amongst my generation, of this idea that if you disagree with somebody, then you can have nothing to do with them. If you disagree with their point of view, it's almost like you're offended with them as a person. If you don't think the same way I think, then you're a bigot. There's this idea that we just cannot have any sort of unity unless we agree on absolutely every single thing. So I want to ask this question. Is there anybody that you have lost this year, not to COVID, but to this sort of fallout, this relational breakdown? Is there somebody who was sat next to you before in church that maybe isn't now, not because we've not quite come back together yet, but because they've left? Is there someone who's uh, in your family who's no longer talking to you because of a fallout or disagreement about politics or whatever it might be? Is there somebody that we have lost. It's so easy isn't it at the moment in our current culture of living online to be able to just unfollow somebody. To just block them if you don't like what they're saying and what comes up on our feed. And I think this especially after this year of spending so much time living online, if we're not careful, this starts to affect our hearts and our spirits. And I think if we throw into, this, into the mix a time where we've physically been separated a lot more and social distancing and lockdown and all that kind of thing and not having this face-to-face meeting, um, with in the midst of political turmoil and a pandemic and misinformation and conspiracy theory, that it's like the, the time is just, it's just almost rife for this breakdown of relationship and at best that looks like unfollowing somebody but at worst it looks like internet meanness, it's trolling people and this vitriolic sort of just just ramming my view down somebody else's throat and just cannot come to any sort of agreement whatsoever um, and even amongst Christians and it's hard, oh, you just never want to look at the comment section ever anywhere online, it's just awful. And this internet meanness is just a a symptom of a larger cultural trend of just cultural outrage, of just being angry at everybody. But this is not the kingdom that God has for us. Amen. (laughs) There's a whole load of problems with this kind of culture. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, right? But one of them, especially, um, which is something we need to be careful of, is if we live by this culture of just just blocking everybody or anybody or cancelling someone that we don't agree with, that we end up living in an echo chamber. And, And that's a way of saying that if we only ever talk to people that we agree with, who think the same way as us, dress the same way, look the same way, shop in the same supermarkets, vote the same way, then the trouble is we start to become almost an oracle unto ourselves. I say, I've got a great idea and everyone around me only says, that sounds great. And anyone who says, maybe Colin, that's not very wise, I I just, there's no opportunity because I've already blocked them from my life. And of course what I'm not saying is we need to go and roll around in the filth of the world just so that we get a taste for it. Obviously it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God has mostly used, for me personally, other people to bring correction for my life. When I hear someone else's point of view and I go, oh, I didn't think of it that way, Jesus, I'm sorry. We need one another's disagreement sometimes to go, actually, that's being brought back on course, that iron sharpening iron picture. Another word for this echo chamber would be tribalism. And, uh, and tribalism is... Uh, Some of this, that's not necessarily bad. I mean, we obviously read about the 12 tribes of Judah uh, in the Old Testament. Tribalism is not necessarily that is in of itself wrong or bad, but this kind of cultural toxic tribalism that says, if you are the person who agrees with me, looks like me, thinks like me, votes like me, then we're one tribe, and if you don't, you're the enemy. You're the other tribe. And Proverbs is full of wisdom about this that says why this is such such a bad idea. Sorry, not a good idea. Um... Proverbs 18 particularly, here's here's one, verse 17, says, The first to speak in court sounds right until the cross-examination begins. An offended friend, as in one who takes offence, is like, uh, sorry, an offended friend is harder to win back than a fortified city. There's a picture here of being embattled, of isolating ourselves. Proverbs 15, says, plans fail for a lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. There is wisdom in community. It's part of the reason God puts us in community. And I know I need community because sometimes I probably have some crazy ideas and I need someone to say, Colin, slow down. Whoa, let's pray about this. Oh, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. I'm glad you are here. And this kind, of, this kind of tribalism, though, is one that is all about just keeping myself safe myself comfortable, because everyone agrees with me so I feel accepted. Rather than saying, what is good for you? How can I help you? How can I come alongside you? This is nothing new. Tribes have existed since the dawn of time. Tribes fighting over land or over resources or for power or conquest. Uh, And on a global scale, these things are still happening. But on a societal scale, I believe the devil is trying to, to tear down community, common unity, this sense of being one, especially within the church, and isolate into tribes. And if the picture of the body in the New Testament is given is one of a body, then tribalism would be like a pile of mouths over here and a pile of of ears over here. The mouths don't want to talk to the ears and the ears don't want to hear what the mouths have to say anyway. But what God has got for us is not tribalism, but is community. We are not called to abandon our brothers and sisters when we disagree with them, but to bear with one another and forgive one another. And if any of us has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave us. It's Colossians 3.13. We must become peacemakers. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12.18. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, Ephesians 4.3. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification, Romans 14.19. So let's look at what a peacemaker looks like. And the picture that Jesus portrays of a peacemaker is maybe not quite what we would exactly first think of. Excuse me. If you've got your Bible, you want to turn to Mark chapter 2. Have everyone's got their Bible with them. This will come up on the screen if you're at home, but if you've got your Bible, this would be great to look at at home. Mark chapter 2, and we're just going to read a chunk here. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. That means many sinners and tax collectors uh, that were following him. By the way, the word sinners here was actually a word for prostitutes that was just used in polite company. And most of the time when we see through through the Gospels when this word sinners is used, it's, it's actually referring to prostitutes. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were like outraged that this is what Jesus would do. This is not the cultural norm. This is not okay in their minds. And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In eating with Levi, and the other tax collectors and prostitutes, Jesus was making a radical statement. And to understand just how radical uh, and, and why it was so upsetting to the Pharisees, I think it's really important that we understand a bit of context. And John Mark Comer's uh, fantastic um, uh, study on Mark 2 really helps paint a picture of what was going on at the time. So. Uh, Jerusalem at this time, first century Israel, was a political tinderbox. I mean, it was just ready to explode, especially around the time of Jesus' life. In fact, in 70 AD was when the time of the Jewish-Roman War, when Jerusalem was under siege by the Romans and was uh, eventually destroyed and the temple was torn down. There was uh, just oppression from the Romans, especially economically. So it is thought by many historians that um, the Jewish people... Were taxed, were were, part of this oppression, were taxed between 75 to 90 percent of everything that they gathered, that they made. Obviously, a lot of it was was in-kind tax. So it was, you know, if you caught fish, then fish would be what you pay. But of course, there was also coinage in the system there and won't go into the offence of why, with the pictures of who was on the coins, why it was so offensive. But at the time anyway, this tax of 75 to 90%, there were people who were just living hand to mouth on their own ancestral land. And so you can imagine just how angry they were. You can understand why they wanted the Messiah, this saviour, to come and overthrow the Romans because they were being oppressed, brutally oppressed. And then you've got Levi. Jesus calls Levi. Levi's other name was Matthew. Matthew, probably the Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. And he was a tax farmer. He um, was employed by the Romans, even though he was a Jew. So would have every reason to hate the Romans, he profited from it. He would go around and collect this 75% say tax from the Jewish people, but then he was allowed to put his own markup on top for his own gain. And he could make that what he wanted. So he might say 75% was what the Romans wanted. I'm going to charge you another 10 on top. And then he had a whole Roman garrison to back it up. So he could come to your house and demand it, and there was nothing that you could do. So you could understand that not only did the people at the time hate the Romans, but if a Jew, one of their own, was then profiting off of what the Romans were doing, just how how offensive that would have been. Just how much they would have detested this man. And so these people, the the tax collectors and the prostitutes, were at the bottom of the social pile in first century Israel. Uh, And these were the people, as we've seen, are completely despised. Everyone else would have taken complete exception to their choices, their lifestyles, their morals, uh, and wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus ate with them. And in doing so, he extended to them the opportunity to find a new life a new start and peace with god this might seem like just a nice story and we think oh yeah jesus is making a statement about just kind of being nice to all people and you know don't judge people and all that kind of thing but there is so much deeper and i think if if we could just try and think for a for a moment okay i want to imagine you to imagine the person who winds you up the most the person who you just think It is this person or these people, perhaps, who are responsible for the breakdown of the moral fortitude of society. It's these people that are to blame for all of the problems in the church. It is these people that have hurt me, that have hurt my friends. It is these people that are responsible for this, that and the other. It's the people with whom you completely disagree. You cannot see eye to eye and you think, I would never be friends with you. I would never even know where to begin with becoming friends with you. That's the person that Jesus went and ate with. And what I think is even more amazing, if that's not enough, that in the next chapter in Mark chapter 3, we read about Jesus calling the or appointing the 12 apostles from his followers. So he's got all his disciples around and then he calls these specific 12. Um, and so we read this in, in um, Mark chapter 3, 16 to 18. I won't go through all the names for the sake of time, but the end of the list just before Judas Iscariot, the last one before Judas is Simon the Zealot. Now, The word zealot here is is a little ambiguous, it's not entirely, no one's entirely sure exactly what it means. It could mean he was zealous for God, it uh, it could be all sorts of things. But it's generally believed that um, Simon the Zealot was probably a member of a religious sect called the Zealots. Now these were a first century uh, violent insurgency group of of far-right Jewish nationalists who used guerrilla tactics against Rome. Um, Another name for these guys was the Sicari, named after the dagger that they carried, or or the seeker. And uh, it means dagger men. And what they would do is would hide these daggers in their cloaks. And at uh, social gatherings or public gatherings, um, they would, in large crowds, they would move their way up just slowly behind a Roman centurion or a Roman sympathizer, somebody, by the way, like Levi. And they would stab them, and then they would just disappear into the crowd. And uh, it's, um, it's actually the word where we get sicario, which is the, the Latin American word, which means like someone who's like a, a dagger man for a drug cartel. It's that same root word. And uh, this man, Simon the Zealot, was called by Jesus. And later we read, uh, you know, the, the Last Supper for one instance, but there would have been many other instances. You have Levi and Simon sat at the same table. I mean, what a picture of a peacemaker who's saying, I'm going to take you, who's a, Jewish, a Roman sympathiser, who's uh, making money, profiteering, of the slave labour of the, your, your own brothers and sisters. And you've got this guy who's a religious fanatic, a Jewish religious fanatic, who wants to kill this man for the very thing that he's doing to his brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, come, let's eat together. Not only that, he causes these two men to become founding members of his church. I mean, I just think it's amazing. <laughs> what, what an amazing picture of a peacemaker. And isn't it interesting that Simon and Levi obviously would have had very difficult political views to say the least. And in fact, at that time, it, we said, it was a political like, tinderbox. And yet Jesus, very conspicuously by its absence, doesn't speak about the politics of the day. He doesn't, at least we don't read about him speaking about Simon's politics or Levi's politics. What he does do is love them and sit with them and be with them and give them an opportunity to make peace with one another and with God. And I'm sure there were conversations. I'm sure there were. But it didn't start with the conversation. It started with a meal. Jesus took enemies, ate with them, and made them family. God's been speaking to us a lot as a church about the importance of the home at this time, the importance of household, of family. And I wonder how much of what he wants to say to us is about this idea of eating with those that we might consider enemies. Now enemies today in today's society means probably a very different word than it it would have for these guys back in first century Israel. But nevertheless, how much is God saying, the people out there, the people in the world, the people around who need to know God and make peace with God, does that need to, and the people that we disagree with, the people we don't like their lifestyle, not the ones that we kind of pity because of their lifestyle, but the ones that make us angry by their lifestyle. What would happen if we invited those people around? And by the way, this is as much a challenge to me. I'm, I'm not saying, hey, I've nailed this. This is as much a challenge to me as it as hopefully is as to all of us. And this is in this and what God's saying. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker for us? Uh, I think first thing we need to acknowledge is that if we're to be a peacemaker, that our role is not to avoid disagreement and conflict. That would make us peace keepers. Peacekeepers maintain the status quo even when the status quo is not good or unjust or or whatever, whatever is not right. Alexander McLaren, you know, I love him, this 19th century Bible expositor, he says this, he puts it this way, there are are other people, sorry, who love peace and seek after it in the cowardly fashion of letting things alone, whose peacemaking has no nobler source than hatred of trouble and a wish to let sleeping dogs lie. These, instead of being peacemakers, are war-makers, for they are laying up materials for a tremendous explosion someday. Now, these are pretty strong words, being war-makers. Um, but I think it's important that we do recognise that being a peacemaker sometimes means having a really tricky conversation that we don't want to have. Peacekeepers would just let it be. But a peacemaker says, no, if I love that person, I need to go and have the conversation. And maybe the, the issue is not between them and me. Maybe they've not offended me, but I see that what's going on in their life is causing hurt or isn't the best. And rather than just going, oh, it's a tricky one. I'm not sure I really want to go there. My responsibility before God is to say, if I really love you, I'm going to come humbly. Yes, of course, in love and try and help you and come alongside you. Let's make peace. So, there's this important part of, of even if we don't agree. But I think it's important also to recognize that disagreement isn't the problem. Disagreements will happen. We often uh, talk about the Acts Church, the early church, as being, we spouse it as being like the, uh, the uh, ecclesiastical superlative of church, like the perfect church. But actually, and in many ways, of course, like, that they were, and they are our example, but it was also full of disagreements and fallings out. But the important thing is, they put it right. The issue is not the disagreement. I would argue that actually sometimes a disagreement can actually be more healthy in the end than never having one. Because it proves something both to the two individuals that they both each consider the relationship more important than the argument to put it right. It actually builds a strength. I remember Pastor Jonathan Dyke, who, who leads the Worthing congregation, and I never got on for a long time. We really wound each other up. I mean, really rubbed each other up the other the wrong way. And if I said, anyone else would like that with JD? No, don't. <laughs> don't put your hands up. Um, we really rubbed each other up the wrong way. And one day, it ended up coming to the point, I'm a little bit embarrassed about this now, but, it came to the point where we basically had a huge argument. Like we were facing up to each other, <laughs> like shouting. It was, and I'm not like that. I'm not a, a, a kind of a conflicty person. I'm having to listen to this message and saying, go and have the conversation, be a peacemaker. So this is not in my nature or my character. But we ended up having this. We, we, it, I don't think it came to, nearly came to blows, but I mean, you know, the, we were read up to about here, put it that way. And do you know what was the best thing we ever did? For the first time, we'd actually been honest with each other. We'd actually s- communicated what was really going on in us, rather than both trying to be diplomatic all the time. And do you know what? Since then, we've had a great relationship. I would consider the man a friend, genuinely. I genuinely respect him. I think he's amazing. I just I admire so much about him. But it would have been very hard for me to see any of those things before. Now, I'm not saying that that was the ideal way for God to get us to the point where we could be real with each other and talk about it. But the disagreement wasn't the problem. It was not being a peacemaker in the right way beforehand that led us to that. But it was put right and it was actually stronger for it. In the verse in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, the line before it is blessed are the pure in heart. And the line right after it is blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. To be a peacemaker means we have to have a pure heart. That means humility. Sometimes uh, the way to, to make peace is just to say I'm sorry. And, and I know that as a church, we've not always got everything right. And over these this last year and a half, we've not got everything right. We've not been everything that we maybe could have been. Or I know I've not done everything the best that I could have, you know, in the, maybe the best way. And for that, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to I wanna be the first to say, you know, I want to take my part in that, I want to, because I don't want any person to leave this, this church or this congregation and feel like they can't have a conversation. That would be the opposite of being peacemakers. And so if my first part is just saying, I'm sorry for for my part, can we please have a conversation? Don't, don't leave it and don't just leave. Um, I want to do that. I want to go first. I'm sorry. <laughs> and... There's obviously that that kind of adage of of people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, And it's important, again, like Jesus having the meal, that we show care and love first. And of course, we want to humbly speak to win the person, not the argument. We've used that phrase so, so many times. And the second thing is we need to be willing to be persecuted. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the first peacemaker who came to make a way for people to make peace with God, he suffered his fair share of persecution, I think it's fair to say, Um, And whether that was for eating with the wrong people or even in the end getting him killed, it might not always be easy to address what God is saying to address. And there might be people who disagree with it or say, I don't want to have that conversation or whatever. But our responsibility is at least to try. I think it's also uh, important to remember that, as we said right at the beginning, being a peacemaker must be someone who cultivates that inner peace by spending time with the Prince of Peace, through the spirit of peace. We cannot give away what we don't carry. But being peacemaker doesn't always, I know these are slightly conflicting things to say, doesn't always mean having a difficult conversation or addressing a disagreement. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who is the author author of a, a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about hospitality, shares her testimony about how she was a, a professor of English literature at a university in New York, and she was a lesbian, and she just thought that Bible-believing Christians were the worst. There were the problems with patriarchy in society and, and you know, uh, and, and judgmental and divisive and all these kind of things. and And... She hated Christians, basically. She wanted nothing to do with them. And she was writing a book all about uh, exposing this. And she had recently written uh, an article about basically criticizing a particular Christian men's group. And a a local pastor had read this article and he'd got in touch and called her up and said, Hi, I read your article. Thank you for what you wanted to share. Um, I just wondered if you wanted to come and eat with my family and I. And since she was doing research for this book and needed to spend time with some Bible-believing Christians, she thought, okay, yeah, this would be a good opportunity, I'll go. And she goes and, and long story short, over a series of weeks, she ends up eating with this family and she finds their life, their family, their love for one another and their faith more compelling than she'd ever seen anywhere else. And uh, again, long story short, she ends up giving her life to Christ She gets wonderfully saved. She ends up marrying a pastor. They've got foster kids. She's a Christian author. like, And and just this amazing testimony. But it didn't start with, we have differing opinions on a certain subject. We're angry at each other. It started with an invitation just to have a meal. I think there's also something in this of worshipping together, in us as the household of the church. It's much harder to be really annoyed with somebody or have unforgiveness towards somebody when you're coming and you're worshipping together. I don't know about you, but God will convict me if I'm like, Jesus, you're amazing. Yeah, but what about this person? <laughs> and it's very difficult to, to focus on what divides you when you're singing as of one voice in unity, Jesus, you are worthy. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why in the church across the nation at the moment. There's been a lot of division is because we've just not had this opportunity to come together as one. So I know there are lots of reasons at the moment. And I'm not saying that people are at home or watching because you're at home because there's a fence or anything like that. Please don't get me wrong. But what a great reason to say, if at all possible and we can, let's start meeting together when we can and worshipping together and just being one again. what a peacemaker is not. Being a peacemaker is not wearing somebody down until they agree with you. It is not making peace with them until they see everything the same way that you do. (laughs) Pete Gregg on his book on uh, prayer, Dirty Glory, which is fantastic, I'd recommend anybody to read it, says unity does not require uniformity. I I love that. We do not all need to look the same think the same shop in the same supermarket vote the same to have even even we don't even need to have all the same dare i say it finer points on our theology to have unity if we did there would be no unity the church of christ would like never work (laughs) we there doesn't need to be uniformity to have unity Kate and I, my wife and I, um, we have different emphasis on things, on the way that we think children should be raised to whether ketchup should be kept in the fridge or the cupboard. It's obviously in the fridge, yeah. Um, we, we don't agree on everything. Actually, I'm joking. She does think it's the fridge as well because she's not crazy. Um, but uh, we don't agree on, on everything. Um, but, and we don't even agree on all the same finer points of theology, but I can tell you, we are one. We are a unified front in our parenting, in our, our belonging to Jesus, in the church. We are one. And if something does come up that brings any disunity, we certainly address it. But we also know that most of the time that addressing just means helping one another understand each other's point of view. We don't have to make them think, I don't have to make her think my way for her to be my wife. We are one, regardless. So we address the issues but it's not about the, just the being right. That's the important part. In fact, as a, as a church, it's our unity amongst and despite our heterogeneousness, our differences, our, our different cultural differences, our multi-ethnic, um, multi-class family of believers that best reflects the kingdom of God, that we're not unified by blood or by soil, but by allegiance to Jesus as king. But what do we do when we're really worried about a person, when we think that they're kind of going off the deep end a little bit and we need to address something? We don't just do it with good argument. Just we talked about tribalism earlier, and tribes would have fought wars with swords and bows and cannons and guns. The weapons of our warfare are not physical, but they're also not trolling somebody on Facebook, They're also not mocking somebody. Do you know what? Right now I need to repent because there have been times that I have mocked people, not necessarily intending to be directly, but just the ideas that they might have about certain things, about whether it's about microchips in a vaccine or something like that. And do you know what? I'm sorry. I'm I'm genuinely, I'm I'm not making a joke. I'm sorry because what I was doing in that was not using God's, the the tools or the weapons that God has given me to help um, pray something into being that I believe, but... To, to poke fun, and to, bring, to that only extends tribalism, and I'm, and I'm sorry. Now, my view hasn't necessarily changed on certain things, but the way I want to communicate it certainly has. And so our, the weapons of our warfare are not mockery, and they're not um, debate. The weapons of our warfare are God-given spiritual power on authority to tear down strongholds, to tear down every thought that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. So we don't just go and say, I'm gonna have a conversation with you. We pray for that person. We pray for truth to come up onto them, their eyes to be open, for them to just, to, to come back into community. We pray for deliverance. We, play, we pray for a breaking off of every stronghold of the enemy. And we have the conversation with them. And lastly, I think it's so important we know that peace, being a peacemaker is not just solving quarrels. It's not just diplomacy or sorting out problems. Like Jesus, the peace that we give is not the world, the peace the, peace the world gives. It is shalom, it is authority full, it is complete and total well being. That's the, the, the peace that we are bringing. And the world needs this peace. Why? Because we need to set an example, so we need to be whole as the church, we need to have some, and today, even after today, you might need to go and have some tricky conversations with people, or maybe a conversation with your boss, or whatever it might be. Um, Because it saddens me how many families I hear about who this member of the family isn't speaking to that member of the family, and it's, it's just complete relational breakdown. We need to set an example to the world but also we need the body to be whole so that we are equipped and ready to minister peace to those who need it Pastor Clive shared earlier about how this this, this girl, this tragedy of this girl who took her own life on Thursday last week the second person to do so, a young girl from Malay to do so in the last several weeks and our, as a community, as a church, our heart breaks and is with the the family and the friends of those girls and I can't begin to imagine what that's like. I don't know the reasons. I don't pretend to. But our heart is with those, those friends and family. But I know that it is not God's best for there to be young people losing their lives like this in our, in our town. And I don't pretend to minimise the tragedy of this death to become nothing more than an illustration and a preach. That is not my intention at all. But how precious, how important, how utterly necessary is this peace that we carry that the world desperately needs. That just such mental turmoil and anguish in the lives of the people around us. And yet we're free. Or sometimes even maybe as a church, we're falling out over our petty differences and there are people who are literally losing their lives for a lack of peace. Jesus, forgive us. Forgive me, Lord. So I think we need to respond, don't we, What what God is saying. So... Would you, would you respond with me? If you want to stand, if you're in the room, if you want to stand, just if you're at home, maybe just close your eyes. And we're just going to address some things in prayer. Excuse me, the <coughs> time is going. But Jesus, we want to respond to this right now. Father, firstly, forgive us. Lord, if there's anything where we know we've, we've been a peacekeeper, forgive us. Where we've not gone and had the conversation, we're sorry, Lord. Confess that as sin. And thank you, Lord, for that. Courage of conviction to go and have it to, to have the conversation Father make us carriers of your peace to a hurting world That we could give others opportunity to make peace with you Jesus this peace is encounter with the peacemaker It is encounter with the prince of peace Make our homes and dining tables places of reconciliation Lord right now would you speak to us If there's somebody that we need to invite Where we find it difficult I know I find it difficult sometimes To invite people into that space of safety And and recharging Father Let me have your heart of compassion first Show us Lord If there's somebody that we need to make peace with It's probably the person we don't want to make eye contact with We don't want to stand too close to Lord show us how we can humbly In love go and have a conversation And let it not live in the land of good intentions, but Jesus. Convict us to go and do it. Make us humble that, Lord, we would not look to to win the argument, but to win the person. Forgive us, Lord, for mocking or making fun, minimizing or disregarding another person's view, rather than looking to love them, help them, lead them, guide them, pray for them, speak truth over them. Father, forgive us for when we've been more interested in in. our being right than in right relationship. Father, we just pray right now for anyone who's walked away from relationship, whether it's from the church, who's just caught up in stuff, who's been, been deceived or or offended or anything like that, Father, we just pray for revelation over them. If there's anyone you're thinking of right now just that God's put on your heart, just pray for them. Jesus, we pray your peace over their minds, over their hearts, Father, that they would hear your voice and the noise. They would hear you speaking to them, that Jesus, they would come back and into relationship and have opportunity to have that iron sharpening iron experience and that we would too. We would have that experience and opportunity with them. Jesus, Father, when we look at the differences that existed between the disciples, Levi and, and Simon, Father, they had every right to be angry at one another and to not speak, but if they could make peace and even be part of, found, you know, be founders of your church and so key in, in what you want to do, Jesus, you can do it in us. Father, let the world know that we're your disciples by the way we love one another, despite our differences in politics or class or race, Or background, upbringing Jesus Let us be truly your body And just to leave with a challenge Just just if God speaks to you about this It might be the case that In life or even on social media That you just need to add some people back into your life That you've blocked or you've unfollowed In whatever way Partly so that they can challenge you, sometimes just to help you really know that you the strength of your own convictions and why you believe what you do, that's good but to allow those things to be challenged when they're not good but also so that you have opportunity to speak into their world their reality with what God and the good that God has done in you Jesus make us peacemakers we pray because peacemakers are truly the children of God